For those of you who are here, turn to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. The Gospel of Mark focuses on who Jesus is and why he came and what it means to follow him. If you're looking in one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 999. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And let me read this wonderful story for us. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, the other side of the lake, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. So for the third week in a row, Mark introduces us to people who come to Jesus in the midst of seemingly hopeless situations. <coughs> So first we saw Jesus' disciples who were in the boat during a storm on the lake that threatened to drown them. They were overwhelmed. It was a hopeless situation physically. Second, we saw a man living among the tombs, crying out and cutting himself and tormenting anyone who interacted with him. We might say it was a hopeless situation psychologically. And now Mark shows us two people who find themselves in seemingly hopeless situations relationally. We see a father whose daughter was dying, and we see a woman 
who couldn't stop bleeding. You know, I think every one of us at some point in our lives finds ourselves in a situation where we feel like we come to the end of our own human resources. Where we feel like we're at the end of our rope. But what we see in this morning's passage is that Jesus meets us in the midst of the hardest and most seemingly hopeless situations. Jesus brings hope for the hopeless. So today I want us to consider, number one, where, where human hopes end, and number two, where hope in Jesus begins. So first, where human hopes end, verses 21 to 29. Now Mark introduces us to two people who have come to the end of their rope. And interestingly, their stories are intertwined. Uh, Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and a woman whose name is not preserved for us. Now, in this case, Mark is telling the story as it unfolded chronologically, but the two stories are also connected thematically. We'll see this as we go along. There's actually nine times in the Gospel of Mark where Mark begins a story, and then the story gets interrupted, and then he comes back to conclude the first story. And anytime Mark does this, the story in the middle is sort of the key. It sort of sheds light on the interrupted story. So, we'll see this as we go along, but uh, there's a reason why these stories are put together and something we can learn from that. Now, think about these two people, Jairus and the woman. On the surface, these were two people who were about as different as you possibly could be in their situation, in their society. Jairus was a man, his name is known, and his position in society was recognized. Now, uh, you might notice that uh, most people who were the recipients of Jesus' miracles in the Bible are not named. So people who are healed or have a demon cast out of them or are raised from the dead, most of them, we don't have their names anymore. But Jairus' name is preserved for us here. So in Mark, there are 13 stories of Jesus doing miracles on someone's behalf, and only three of their names are preserved. Peter's mother-in-law in chapter 1, Jairus, his daughter here, and Bartimaeus in chapter 10, who was a blind man. And Mark also mentions several times that Jesus healed many other people. Doesn't name them. So why is Jairus named? Uh, well, in general, there are two categories of people who are named in the New Testament Gospels. Number one is public figures, people everybody knew, like Herod, Pilate, and John the Baptist. And those are attested for us in uh, secular literature as well as in the New Testament. The second group who are consistently named are Jesus' disciples, the Twelve and others uh, closely affiliated with Jesus, who became witnesses to the truth of these stories. So by the time the Gospels, think about this, by the time the Gospels were written, it was about 20, 30 years after Jesus' resurrection where they began to be written, many of the people whom Jesus had healed, some of them might have already died, some of them didn't become followers of Jesus, or their names wouldn't have been rem weren't remembered or weren't recognizable. But some people who Jesus healed during his earthly ministry became his followers and became a part of the early church in Jerusalem or elsewhere, and they could testify to the truth of what we read in these stories. And most likely that's why Mark includes Jairus' name, because he was one of those guys, perhaps he and his daughter, uh, and his, his family who became part of the early church 
His name would have been recognized and known by at least some of Mark's readers. He could verify the truth of this account. Now, that's a bit of an aside, uh, but back to the story. So Jairus, he was on top of his society. His name was known, his position was recognized. He was a husband, a father, a homeowner. Verse 22 says he was one of the rulers of the synagogue, presumably in Capernaum. Back then, every synagogue where Jewish people met in different towns to study the scriptures had a president or sometimes a group of elders who sort of oversaw the synagogue's affairs and meetings. Uh, they were highly respected men. Usually they were also well off financially. And so in many ways, Jairus was at the top of his society, known, respected. The woman would have been at the absolute bottom. As a female, unnamed, and desperately poor person. Verse 26 says she had spent all that she had. And she, unlike Jairus' daughter, she has no one who will advocate for her and who will help her and stand up for her. Because for 12 years, she couldn't stop bleeding. Most likely, she had some kind of menstrual hemorrhage that never completely healed. Now, in ancient Israel, someone who was actively bleeding was considered unclean. So if you read the Old Testament book of Leviticus, that's one of those books that most of us don't always get around to reading. But if you look in there, there's all kinds of rules about all kinds of things that would make you unclean. So here's some things. If you go into a house with mildew, if you have a skin disease, if you touch a dead body, if you're actively bleeding, or if you touch somebody else's blood. Now, if you became unclean, sometimes it was fairly simple. Sometimes all you had to do is wait till the end of the day and wash up, bathe in water, and then you'd be fine. Uh, sometimes it's a little more complicated. You had to offer sacrifice or something like that. Now, you might say, well, why these laws about uncleanness? Why these rules? Well, some of them have health reasons behind them. Some of them were meant to prevent the spread of contamination or infectious diseases uh, back in the day. But uh, more than health reasons were spiritual reasons. You see, the primary reason for these laws about uncleanness was to remind people of a spiritual reality, that all of us are spiritually unclean compared to God, who's perfectly pure and holy. Because you see, every person at some point in their life would become unclean. Right? Because of bleeding, bodily discharges, all kinds of other things. Touching, you know, uh, touching, a, touch, touching something that was dead. Uh, and, but the physical manifestations of uncleanness, like blood and sickness and death, were reminders that we live in a spiritually polluted world. That spiritually, we're not all pure and clean. And so the physical reminders of uncleanness were sort of, a, they were meant to remind us of that reality, that bigger reality. But for this woman, she hadn't just been unclean temporarily, like everybody would be at one point or another. She, her bleeding had not completely stopped for 12 years. Ever, think about it, ever since Jairus' daughter was born, she had been perpetually unclean, which meant, here's what it meant. She wasn't supposed to touch anyone else. Because if you were in the unclean status, you weren't supposed to touch anyone until you washed up and became clean. But if the bleeding continues, well, you're still unclean. Imagine what that would have been like. Not being allowed to 
hug anyone for 12 years. Never feeling a hand of blessing or affirmation on her shoulder. If she had ever been married, in the society she was living in, her husband would most likely have divorced her many years ago because of this condition. And if she had never been married, no man would have wanted her. She wasn't allowed to enter a synagogue in this condition. She wasn't allowed to go to the temple. And there was the bleeding. How many clothes were ruined by blood stains? How many days was she lightheaded and dizzy? She didn't just experience pain every once in a while. She had lived through 12 years of chronic shame and illness and isolation. Imagine what that would feel like. And of course, she had pursued all the medical treatments that were available to her in that society. But her condition only continued to deteriorate. So on the surface, Jairus is on top and the woman's on the bottom of their society. On the surface, they're about as different as you could possibly imagine, but they both find themselves in situations that, feel human, that felt humanly hopeless, where they felt like they'd come to the end of their rope and there was nothing more they could do, and they both came to Jesus humbly. Verse 23 says, Jairus' daughter was at the point of death. In other words, we call it critically ill, in critical condition. And Luke chapter 8 tells the same story, and Luke specifies she was his only daughter. Most likely means he was, she was his only child. You know, in those days, most people hoped to have large families. So perhaps Jairus and his wife had experienced some other disappointments along the way. Perhaps difficulty conceiving or miscarriages or stillbirths or children dying at a young age. All those things were common in the ancient world where Jesus lived. But Jairus had one daughter whom he deeply and dearly loved, and she was dying. And in that moment, no matter how successful Jairus was, no matter how much status and privilege he enjoyed in his society and in his synagogue, what mattered most to him is that he had an only daughter who was laying at home on her deathbed. And there was nothing he could do on his own to fix her and heal her condition. Some of you may have experienced the anguish of seeing a child suffer from an illness that you could not cure. Some of you, I know, have experienced the grief of losing a child. As a father, I can only imagine how I would feel. We all expect, I think, to see our parents die at some point, but we don't naturally expect to see our children die. We want to protect our children, and yet sometimes we can't. And that's the situation Jairus was in. And so Jairus comes to Jesus. He fell at his feet, verse 23 said, and implored him earnestly. Now that was not normal behavior for a well-respected gentleman in that society. Normally, a well-respected gentleman would walk upright. Perhaps he would bow to an older man as a sign of respect. But the only time he would bow down and prostrate himself would be if he was in the presence of a king or in the presence of Almighty God. But that's how he approaches Jesus. Jairus doesn't come to Jesus bargaining or commanding. He comes pleading for mercy, imploring him earnestly, falling at his feet. And the woman approached Jesus with a similar desperate humility. 
She had, verse 27 says she had heard the reports about Jesus, and so she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now notice, by touching Jesus, she was doing something that she wasn't technically supposed to do, according to those laws about uncleanness, because if she touched somebody else, she would make them unclean. So she was, that's probably why she approached Jesus from the back instead of from the front. She wanted to stay anonymous. She wanted nobody to see and nobody to know. But she acted on what she had heard about Jesus and she thought, I think if I touch him, I might be healed. And I am willing to take the risk of pushing through a crowd and touch him really quickly and then get away as fast as I can. See, both of these people found themselves in humanly hopeless situations. But that's where Jesus meets us. That's where hope in Jesus begins, and that brings us to the second half of the story, not just where human hopes end, but where hope in Jesus begins. Now, finding hope in Jesus in the midst of a hopeless situation involves two things, faith and grace. And we see these two things in, this, in how Jesus responds to Jairus, or to the woman, and later to Jairus. We see that Jesus calls us to faith. In other words, he asks us for much more than we expect to give him. He calls us to faith. But second, we'll see that he gives us grace. He gives us much more than we expect to receive. So let me show you these two themes with Jairus and with the woman. Notice these stories are linked together in all kinds of ways. So first, Jesus asks us for much more than we expect to give. In other words, he calls us to faith. So consider the woman. She took a risk to touch Jesus. If people in the crowd realized her condition, they might have started yelling at her to go away. But she took that risk because she, she took that risk. But Jesus didn't just let her go on her way. Right? Jesus did something that in the moment seemed very awkward to everyone around him. He stops and he says, who touched me? Now, Jesus' disciples thought that this was a very silly question to ask. Verse 31, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Can I say, Sometimes Jesus' followers say stupid things. In fact, so far in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' disciples have only said stupid things. They've spoken to Jesus three times. Chapter 1, Jesus had gone off in the wilderness to pray. And they come to him and they say, everyone's looking for you. In other words, they're sort of saying, Jesus, why are you going off by yourself and praying? You need to please all these people who want to talk with you. I want you to heal them. And Jesus says to them, no, I'm, I have my priorities. That's the first time they speak to him. The second time they speak to them is in the boat during the storm when they say, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Again, right? They don't trust him. And here again, they act like Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. So, so far, Jesus' disciples have only said stupid things. Now, if Jesus' disciples back then were prone to say stupid things, uh, we who follow him today should be careful how we speak. 
We should think before we speak instead of speaking before we think. But Jesus wasn't thrown off by his disciples' misguided comments. Jesus knew what he was doing, and he kept looking around to see who had touched him, verse 23, or no, 32. You see, Jesus didn't let the woman just go on her way. Anonymously, he insisted that she give a public testimony. Now, that was the last thing she would have wanted to do. Right? Public speaking can be unnerving for almost anybody. But telling a whole crowd of unfamiliar people about your most embarrassing personal problem and how Jesus had healed her was not what she was planning to do. That's not what she wanted. You see, sometimes Jesus asks us for much more than we feel prepared to give him. Sometimes he stretches us, he challenges us he, he, to do something that takes us out of our comfort zone. But when he does that, he's calling us to faith. He's calling us to trust him. And notice the woman's response, verse 33. She came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She was more afraid at the end than she was at the beginning. But her fear didn't drive her away from Jesus. Her fear drove her even closer to him. Because she knew that Jesus wasn't against her. Jesus wasn't trying to punish her. She had already experienced his healing physically. And so she trusted him when he asked her to for more than she expected to give. Jesus called the woman to faith. But he also gives her grace. He also gives her much more than she expected to receive. She wanted an anonymous physical healing. Touch his garment and then get out of there. Nobody knows. And she got that. And that was an amazing thing. For the first time in 12 years, she felt the bleeding head stop for good. But Jesus didn't just want to heal her body. He wanted to heal her relationships. And so he insisted on publicly recognizing her, publicly affirming her, and publicly restoring her. He didn't want her to walk away unknown and unrecognized. Verse 34, he called her daughter. This is the only time in all the Gospels when Jesus calls someone daughter. But what Jesus is saying is, you belong in the family of God. You had nobody who would stand up for you and advocate for you, but I will advocate for you. I will take your concerns as my own. Your faith has made you well. That can also be translated, your faith has saved you. Jesus wanted the woman to experience not just physical healing, but holistic salvation, a restored relationship with God and with his people. That wouldn't just last temporarily, but would last eternally. So Jesus gave, so Jesus asked the woman for far more than she expected to give, but he gave her much more than she expected to receive. But in the meantime, Jairus was standing there waiting. And what at first seemed like a compassionate interlude now appears to be a fatal interruption because word comes from Jairus' house, his daughter has died. It's too late. Jairus had come to Jesus humbly, asking for help, but things got worse instead of better. I mean, imagine the questions that might have come to Jairus' mind. Jesus, why did you stop and cause such a long delay, having her tell her whole long story in front of everyone? Or he might have thought, why was Jesus compassionate to her, but not to me? Now, whatever questions may have come to Jairus' mind, Jesus didn't 
stopped to answer any of them. He simply said, don't fear, only believe. Again, he called Jairus to faith. He asked Jairus for much more than he expected to give. He said, trust me and stay with me, not just when your daughter is critically ill, but even when your daughter has died. Now, some of us might say, trust, believe, yeah, right. I asked for help and you didn't deliver. What do you mean, just believe? But notice that just trusting in Jesus is exactly what the woman had just done. You see, Jesus said in verse 34 to the woman, he said, your faith has made you well. You see, Jesus saw that she had faith. How did Jesus see that this woman had faith? The woman doesn't stand up and say, I believe that you are the son of God. Right? Says so she tells how she had been healed. She might have gone on and said a lot of things. But no, Jesus saw that she had faith because she reached out to Jesus. She acted on the knowledge that she had about Jesus. Even though in the beginning she only had a little bit of knowledge about Jesus. You see, faith means acting on what you know about Jesus. It means reaching out to Jesus and not letting anything else, not even a big crowd of people, get in the way. Now, some people, um, some people think that faith means expecting a certain outcome when you pray. But that's not actually what we see here. I think that can sometimes be a misguided view of faith. Now, Jairus hoped that Jesus would come to his house and heal his daughter before she died. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't fulfill Jairus' expectation or hope. The woman hoped that Jesus would heal her without her having to let anybody know. And Jesus healed her, but her an anonymity got totally blasted. Right? She was now known to everyone. You see, faith isn't about expecting a certain outcome in advance when you pray. But faith is reaching out to Jesus and holding on to Jesus and not letting anything else get between you and him. Even when his timing doesn't seem to make sense, even when things initially seem to get worse instead of better, as it seemed like for Jairus. So when Jesus said to Jairus, don't fear, only trust me, in some ways he was saying, do just what you saw this woman do. Trust me and don't let your fear drive you away from me. I mean, isn't that fascinating that Jesus teaches Jairus through a woman who would not have even been allowed to enter the synagogue in her initial condition. Jesus teaches a synagogue ruler at the top of his society. He teaches him about faith through this woman who would have been completely overlooked. So no matter how high up you are in society, no matter how high a position you occupy in the church, don't ever look down at someone and say, I could never learn anything from her. No, don't ever despise any person whom God brings across your path because he might be teaching you a very precious lesson about trusting him through that person, even someone you would completely not expect. So Jesus called Jairus to faith. He asked Jairus for far more than he expected to give. Trust me, even though, yes, your daughter has just died. But Jesus also gave Jairus 
far more than he ever imagined. He didn't just heal his daughter, he raised her from death to life. And in doing so, he demonstrated his power, not just over sickness, but even over death itself. You see, in the last three stories that we've looked at the last, this week and the last two weeks, when Jesus meets people in humanly hopeless situations, he demonstrates that he has authority over nature, instilling the storm, over evil spirits, in calming and bringing peace to the man who is so deeply troubled. And we've seen that Jesus is Lord over sickness and healing the woman. And finally, we see that Jesus is Lord even over death in raising Jairus' daughter to life. That Jesus can go into a room and take the hand of a 12-year-old girl who had just died and call her back to life again. Is that not amazing? Verse 42 says, they were immediately overcome with amazement. How could Jesus do this? They might have asked, how can Jesus touch an unclean woman and make her clean and whole again. How could he touch a dead body? That would make you unclean too. But Jesus doesn't become unclean. He brings life to the dead body. How can Jesus heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse the unclean and do what no other human being can do in their own power? Back in the book of Leviticus, the one with all those rules about uncleanness, there's one chapter right in the middle of that book. Chapter 16 tells about one day of the year called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would kill a goat as an offering, not just for one person's sin or uncleanness, not just for one family's sin or uncleanness, not just for a, a few sins, but for all the sins of the, all the people. Leviticus 16, verse 30 says, On this day, shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Now that sacrifice that Leviticus described had to be repeated once every year. The high priest would go into the most holy place and offer a special sacrifice that was never repeated on any other day of the year. But Jesus had come to be the fulfillment of that sacrifice, to offer a sacrifice once for all time that would be effective to cleanse anyone who would ever come to him. When the woman touched Jesus, she felt that she was healed. But verse 30 says, Jesus felt that power had gone out from him. You see, there was a transfer. The woman becomes clean and whole, and Jesus feels drained. Power had gone out. And of course, this is a little preview of what Mark's story is leading up to all along. When Jesus would die on the cross and take our place. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he became like the woman. He became unclean. He was bleeding. And he was humiliated. And he was rejected. And he became like Jairus' daughter. He was dead. On the cross, Jesus bore our sins. He took our place so that we might be cleansed, so that he might make all us clean and whole, and then he rose again as the Lord over death. You see, one day every one of us will die. But if our faith is in Jesus, on the other side of death, we'll hear his voice, just like Jairus' daughter did, saying, hey kid, time to wake up. That's basically what Jesus says, little child, arise. That's what we'll hear. On the other side of death, 
if our faith is in him. And we will rise like him to be forever with him. You see, if you encounter Jesus, he will always call you to faith. He will always challenge you to give him more than you expect to give. You will always feel stretched. And you may feel, oh my goodness, I don't know how I could do what Jesus seems to be asking me to do. But he will always give you far more grace than you ever expected. He will give you far more than you ever imagined or expected. Abundant grace. Maybe you can identify with a woman in this story. Maybe you've lived with chronic physical or emotional pain for months or years. Maybe you felt like she did, rejected, unwanted, and shut out. Maybe you've come to the end of your rope. Maybe you feel you have no one to stand up for you. People who promised to stand up for you in the past have gone. But reach out to Jesus. Because when you reach out to him, he will release God's power into your life. He will make you clean and whole. He will say, daughter, son, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Maybe you identify more with Jairus. Your life is well put together on the outside. Many people would look up to you. You're well respected. But on the inside, you carry a burden for someone you dearly love. And you feel, as Jairus did, that sense of coming to the end of his rope, where his human hopes ended. Come to Jesus like Jairus did. Invite him into your home. Invite him into your life. He will come and meet you. And you know, finally, there's one other group that Jesus is teaching in this story, which is his own disciples. And his own disciples don't get it yet. But very soon, in fact, next week, we'll see that Jesus sends them out to minister in his name. You see, he's teaching them and training them. They're going to be sent out, just as Jesus will send us out as his representatives, to call people to faith and to declare his abundant grace. That's who he's called us to be as a church, a people who go out and interact with people who might be like Jairus on top of the world, who might be like the woman on the bottom of society, but to proclaim that in Jesus there is hope. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you for his compassion, for his care for people that we see in this story. We, thank, we pray that we would experience, Lord, your healing and restoring and life-giving power that we would go out today with that blessing that the woman heard go in peace and be freed from your suffering lord we pray that you would that we would cling to you even when you call us to do things that feel like a big stretch a challenge that we had never foreseen or expected we thank you that in the midst of those you give us abundant grace. And we pray that each one of us would experience that in greater measure. In your name, we pray. Amen.